We turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We read the chapter. Our text is the last section from verses 18 through 25. I won't reread that passage, and so we'll pay careful attention especially to verses 18 through the end, which constitute the words of our text. We hear the word of God in 1 Peter chapter 2. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed." But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. And then here follow the words of our text. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently, but if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, that this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle continues his treatment of talking about our honest walk in the midst of the world. Going back to verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. He then got at and emphasized the submission to authority, the rulers. Secondly, now he deals with submission within the workplace. And then in chapter 3, continues with that submission in the realm of marriage. We may never compromise our Christian principles for the sake of material, carnal reasons. We're tempted to do that in so many ways with regard to our relationship to the government. Tempted to compromise our Christian faith in order to save on taxes or to avoid certain fees or other things. We're interested in self and we seek our self-advancement at the expense of the principles of Scripture. Peter establishes the principle of submission to authority. And now he applies it to labor, to work. Also in this area, we are tempted to compromise. Our conduct in the workplace must be such that even the Gentiles, even wicked individuals, see and respect us. And notice that there's something different about the manner in which we labor. And more than that, they need to see that being a Christian has implications for every part of life, including the way we work and how we conduct ourselves at work. It's very striking that the Bible's approach is directed to servants and the place of servants. The Bible doesn't overthrow the practices of society, but rather the Bible gives instruction and respects the differences between men as of God. So that the fact that one is a master and another is a slave is of God. God leaves the masters masters. He leaves the slaves slaves. But then God has a word for them and he instructs them as to how each is to occupy that position and how they are to do so to the glory of God. This evening we look at the word of God regarding servants. The word that's used here for master emphasizes the absolute character and nature of the dominion. One who's a master is one who has absolute authority over the one who is a servant. The apostle says there were some masters who were good, who were gentle. Others were froward, that is, evil, cruel, mean, and perverse. But regardless, the Christian lives by faith, submitting to them. 
And we hear this word under the theme, Christian workers exhorted. Noting, first of all, the duty. Secondly, the purpose of that instruction. And finally, the blessedness. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Now, that word servant originally referred to those who are bound to their master in obedience because they belong to that master. That master owned them. And they were to do everything that that master required. They were not free. They were bound. Now, although the reference is to such house servants, the principle here is broader and applies to the relationship between employer and employee. Again, the frequency with which the Bible addresses this admonition to servants needs to cause us to pause and underscores the urgency There is inherent in our natures an unwillingness to submit. We do not desire to submit to others. And our sinful natures are such that we would not submit to those in authority within the workplace. And so again and again, that admonition is directed toward those who are servants, those who are employees. Now this does not imply that masters have no obligations. We'll address aspects of that. But God also deals with that separately many times in the Bible. As for instance in Colossians 4 verse 1. But here the focus is on the employees and their calling before God. The employee must love, honor, respect, and obey his employer. He must seek the good of the company for which he works. And he must seek the best interests of his employer. He's forbidden to do anything that would harm the business. Only when required to do something unbiblical may he disobey, refuse obedience. But even then, his calling is to submit. Always we understand a worker is free to leave a job and to go find a different job. If he's dissatisfied, if he's being treated wrong. But he may not backbite, slander, engage in all kinds of evil activity. Now the apostle here speaks of fear. In the previous verse, verse 17, fear God. Now, servants be subject to your masters with all fear. Again, that fear is not terror. The fear is a fear of God, which involves love, reverence, respect, honor. We love, we honor, we respect the employer for God's sake. And the submission then involves that fear of God as Christ is the one ruling us through the employer. And as we show them that fear, that honor, that love, that respect toward the employer, we're also showing it then to God. We're doing it for God's sake. Now the master is one who is a Lord and one who rules the servants. Literally, the word for master is a despot. A word that has a negative meaning and connotation in our day. would refer to a ruthless, tyrannical dictator. The word, however, is used to refer simply to the absolute character and nature of that domain. This one, who's the master, has complete, total control over the business that is his. He has authority over it. The one who owns the company is the master. And he's the one to whom now this word applies. The boss. 
has total authority and control over that which has been entrusted to him. Control over the funds, control over the employees, control over the sales, control over everything. The equipment, everything that he has. In our day, that would be equated to the master who is placed by God in that position of authority. Now, the employer operates as a servant of Jehovah God, placed in authority over the employee. And the employee submits with all fear. We realize the application here is broad. A minister is not exempted from this, as has been evident in the recent history of our churches. He is called to submit to his consistory. The consistory might tell him what title they prefer him to have, pastor or reverend. They might give him a dress code with regard to how they expect him to dress for catechism or for societies. They might set before him a particular benediction they desire him to use, a certain series of sermons they want him to preach. They might limit what he's able to speak for or not, what he's able to write for or not. And he submits willingly for Christ's sake. Now, in our modern society and economy, we're no longer accustomed to the master-slave relationship. Under our modern system, the workers are free. They're free to work if they please and free to leave and go to a different job if they would desire, which is good and right. And under our system, management no longer owns the employees. The laborer is free. The master may not do with him as he pleases. And again, that's according to Scripture. But the principle still applies of our text. And that principle that's set forth in our text is this. The employer has complete authority over the employee for the time that that employee works for him. The employer has complete authority over his time, over the conduct, the clothing he wears, the way he speaks, everything. And the employer has the right to dictate all of those matters to the employee. That authority must be respected. The employee must be in subjection to the authority of his employer in all fear. Even though the master doesn't own the workers, the worker is expected to be in subjection. And he must submit in all things even if he cannot, in all things, obey. And along with that, there may be consequences for disobedience. As the text speaks of suffering, it may be that there are intense consequences, and we anticipate those consequences are going to increase as the end of the world draws closer. He may lose his job, may lose promotions, but these sufferings are expected of the child of God. He's a pilgrim. He's a stranger. The master is expected to rule his workers in the fear of God. Now, there's always a temptation in this relationship to be less than spiritual. Elect strangers, whether they be masters or whether they be employees, are still in the flesh. We still have that old nature against which we battle. And we're tempted to use our masters for our own gain. Selfishly seeking to use them for our own benefit. Stealing from them. Abusing the things that they give us. 
as masters, we're tempted to use our employees for our own gain, refusing to pay them what they're due, working them harder than we should. We're seeking the things that are here below in our sinful natures. Now, there are workers or servants who respond favorably to their good masters, only then to turn on them for material reasons. They're eye-pleasers. They're men-pleasers, seeking the praise of men. When their employers are cruel, they rebel, and they're inclined then to organize strikes against them. Labor unions stand diametrically opposed to this word of God. The great evil of the strike is that the fundamental spirit of the movement is materialism, it's greed, it's covetousness. And the strike clause of a union views the relationship between the company and the employees as equals rather than as master and servant. The employee at times even asserts himself above the master so that the employee says to the master, you can't take my job away even though I'm not going to work for you. I'm going to cause you all kinds of harm. I'm going to stop production for you. I, together with these workers with whom I work, are going to decide who works with us, not you. And we're going to deny you the right to hire someone in our place. Now, where in that is the honor that's being spoken of in our text? That's a violation of the fifth commandment. Peter talks about submission in connection with suffering. He doesn't talk about the right of every servant to make as much money as he desires. He doesn't even talk about any right to eat. He emphatically states the necessity of subjection, which may well lead to suffering. Romans 13, 1 and 2 make it emphatic. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. Now, beloved, this word of God applies to all of us. We are servants of Jehovah God. Servanthood began with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the supreme example of a servant. And the apostle addresses that here in this text. He gave himself completely for the service of his Lord. He came not to do his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. He did not seek his own glory, but the glory and honor of the triune God. He did not come to be ministered unto, but he came to minister to. The devotion, the loyalty, the obedience of Jesus Christ was perfect, uncompromised. The Bible speaks of many examples of servants who pointed to Christ, who served as types of his servanthood. Moses is called repeatedly the servant of Jehovah. David is called the servant of God as he served as king and ruler in Israel. Samuel, Nehemiah, Simeon, many of the apostles are designated again and again as God's servants. Those whom God called to serve him and to submit to him. We're called to give ourselves to the service of the Lord unwaveringly. What comes first is not what I want, my own goals, my own ambitions. It's not my business, my money, but God. And the fact that Jehovah God has called me to live 
unto him. That's the whole point of the apostle throughout this passage. In chapter 2, verse 10, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You are those whom God has plucked out of darkness into light. And now this is how you are to live as his servants in the midst of this world, called by God to perfect obedience in his service. God gives us work to do. And we faithfully take up that work. And our calling is to serve Him. We must do the will of God obediently. Now we don't imagine that God needs us as His servants. In the sense that somehow He would be hopelessly lost without our assistance. We know that God needs nothing. We don't give God something that He didn't already have when we serve Him. In all the service of the Lord that we are engaged, we're merely producing the fruit of His work within us by His Spirit. The very fact that we've been made His servants is a wonder of grace. And within that calling of servanthood, there's a high standard then to which we are called to attain to. The whole obligation is to serve Jehovah, our God and Father, as His servants. Now many of us own our own businesses. We find ourselves servants of Jehovah who have been appointed by God to be masters with respect to other men. We're called upon God as faithful masters and lords to serve Him with fear. Not using that authority for self, but using that authority, the abilities that God has given us to glorify and to praise His name. How we treat our employees is going to differ from employee to employee, from circumstance to circumstance. Those with much experience in supervising people know that it's difficult to set distinct rules that would apply to everyone. Much wisdom is required. Each individual dealt with according to their abilities, according to their needs. Our calling in life is not merely to run a good business to make a lot of money, but it's to serve God in relation to our employees. We are a witness of the power of God's grace in our lives in how we deal with those whom God places under our supervision. They not only know that we're Christians, but they must see that we are Christians by the way in which we run the business and the way in which we interact with them. But again, this passage is directed primarily towards servants. Peter's exhorting servants or employees. And we look at especially three areas that are important in this regard. All that start with a D. First of all, in your deportment. That is, in the manner in which you conduct yourself. Striving in all things to please. The Christian employee who is a servant of the Lord does his work heartily. He's eager to please and to meet the wishes of his employer as much as he's able, pleasing them well in all things. The Christian servant does good work, does careful work, uses his ability and his energy in the employment of his master. And practically, this means then that the Christian employee puts in a good day of hard, faithful work. 
He does his best with the abilities and gifts that God has given him. And his work shines with excellency according to those abilities. His deportment is such that he conducts himself diligently. But secondly, in his disposition, that is his attitude. His attitude of humility, his attitude of submission, rather than speaking against. The Christian worker does his work willingly, cheerfully, not grudgingly. He may see sins about him. He hears the admonition of the Heidelberg Catechism under the fifth commandment to bear patiently with the weaknesses of those whom God places in authority over us. He may see the evil of worldly men advancing in prosperity and in positions through corruption, through violence. And he may be inclined to follow their path and to pursue that way. He may find it very difficult to work with some individuals because of the manner in which they conduct themselves in a deceitful and sinful way. He may see even his boss rewarding evil and rewarding corruption. He may think that he knows way more than what the boss does. How better this business could be operated. And though he may bring it to the attention of his employer, he does so with humility. He does so with care. Again, not backbiting, not slander, not responding with disrespectful, with provoking language, using his example as the most powerful tool in silencing the accusations of wicked men. His attitude, his disposition, that of humility, that of godly fear and submission. And because the Christian realizes that he does everything unto the Lord, he can find joy, he finds satisfaction in even the most tedious, laborious of labors. His great joy and satisfaction is found in this. He's doing his work faithfully before the face of God. He's doing his work to the best of his ability in righteousness before God. And his attitude of humility, his attitude of submission, demonstrates that grace of God in his life. Third, in your dependability. Refusing to steal from, to take advantage of, but showing, rather, trust, dependability. The temptation of a worker is to pursue material gain regardless of the means. And he's tempted to follow corruption sometime in order to be advanced, to make more money. Or he's tempted to be lazy. Not a diligent employee. He sees the wealth, perhaps, that God is giving to his employer. And he becomes covetous. He becomes greedy of it. And he begins to justify his stealing things from his employer. Stealing time by not laboring as faithfully and diligently as he ought. Causing projects to be drug out by his laziness. Stealing tools, stealing product, wasting the goods that he is entrusted with. He doesn't take care of the machines. He doesn't take care of the vehicles that are entrusted to him. And once he begins to harbor these kind of thoughts of taking things that are not right, it becomes more and more challenging to do good as his conscience becomes increasingly hardened. And he becomes caught up in that covetousness. That greed. The servant of Jehovah must not make materialism his idol. He serves God. And he knows that it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. 
He's aware of the great danger that the love of riches and the love of money will likely lead him away from his Lord. So he seeks to maintain that faithful spirit with regard to his employer. For what purpose? The apostle addresses this. For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. The Christian is called to serve Christ in his work. We're called to reflect Christ in our walk and conduct. And if we look at those three D's again, Think of Christ. Christ maintained perfect deportment. His conduct was blameless. And the suffering of Jesus Christ is for our benefit. His servanthood is for our benefit. There was no guile found in his mouth, according to verse 22. Men thoroughly examined his speech. They analyzed his doctrines. They never detected any lies, any falsehood, any deceit. His deportment before wicked men was perfect and upright. His labor before his father was diligent, unceasing, faithful to the very end. In all things, his focus and his goal was to glorify his father through his diligent labors in the way of submission and obedience. The goal and focus of the Christian employee as he labors for the sake of Christ is similar. Secondly, Christ was humble in his disposition. Only by the power of and for the sake of Christ can the employee walk in humility with respect to that disposition. He remembers Jesus Christ, again, whom the text references. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Verse 23. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, yet he opened not his mouth. Rather than striving, rather than trying to get vengeance, he recalls the words of Jehovah, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And he stands with Joseph, with Daniel, with Nehemiah in their faithful, humble devotion to their heathen employers, praying that God would use them as a testimony through their diligent, humble service. Finally, Christ was dependable to his heavenly Father. He was faithful to the end, committed to his heavenly Father in all things. And by the power of Christ again, the servant is able to show that faithfulness. Looking to Christ who gave everything, who humbled himself even unto death. Trusting in the grace, the strength that Christ provides to keep him from greed, from covetousness, To preserve him in the midst of the world, knowing that to whom much is given, much also is required. And to be faithful for Christ's sake, shining as an example, as a light in the midst of darkness. God hates the sluggard. God hates the man who refuses to work. The apostles were instructed to tell that one, if you won't work, you also will not eat. He commands us to work diligently with our hands and with our heads. Now the employee always has the right to find a different job. He may always talk to his employer and express his need for a larger wage. 
for improvement with regard to work conditions. But always he does so with respect, with honor, with love. Never trying to harm the business or the employer. And God is pleased to use that earthly labor as a means to prepare us for everlasting glory in his kingdom. God is teaching us patience. He's teaching us holiness. He's teaching us spiritual traits. And we grow in godliness. We grow in contentment. We suffer for the sake of Jehovah, both as servants and as masters. That spiritual growth in grace will be evident. And by the work of God's grace, we will, in our weakness, reflect Christ. We will give evidence of His faithfulness, His humility, and His dependability. And we expect suffering. That's a striking aspect of this text. Remember the apostle here is speaking to those who are scattered, those who are strangers, pilgrims, those who are to expect persecution and opposition. And now also in the realm of the workplace. That's striking. Why does it please God to allow His people to suffer unjustly? And why does He bear such suffering and desire that His children bear that suffering with patience? Why does God allow such? Doesn't God want us to be happy? Doesn't God desire that we be prosperous and that we be free from suffering? This is a real struggle for the child of God at times. This was the struggle of Asaph in Psalm 73, looking around him, seeing that the wicked were prosperous and he was struggling. Today we hear, God wants you to be happy. God doesn't want you to be struggling. God doesn't want you to be suffering. Is that really true? Nowhere in the Bible do we find those kind of promises from God regarding his people. To the contrary, we find God here even in this instance insisting there's going to be suffering and then warning us as to the character of it. There's a possibility that that suffering could be because of your own failures, because you're not walking faithfully as an employee. There's no glory in that, he states in verse 19, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. The believer's life in the midst of this world is a life of suffering, of distress, of affliction, of pain, persecution, cross-bearing. It's a life that from every earthly perspective is not desirable. Why is this? God delights in our suffering for Christ's sake. That's the purpose. God is using our suffering for the sake of His glory. The gospel of Christ is contrary to human wisdom. Suffering in this world is inevitable for those who follow after Christ. For those who walk in holiness and godliness. And God's people on earth are called to suffer. Also at the hands of unjust employers. Verse 21 makes it God's will. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. That suffering is a privilege 
That suffering is a blessing. It's reason for thanksgiving and joy. And we think here of Jesus' words in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. There will be persecution. There will be suffering. And in that, we are to rejoice. Count it a privilege to suffer for Christ's sake. There's another purpose that's set forth here in verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. This is a very significant verse, and it adds something to the argument here of the apostle. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, bore our sins himself. He stood alone as the head of the elect, authorized and entitled by God to bear the sins of his own. He bore your sins, my sins of pride, of self-seeking. He bore our sins of greed and covetousness and lust. He carried our sins of rebellion and lack of submission. He bore those sins of the tongue, those sins, every sin, and he carried them to the cross. Literally, the idea here is that He carried them to the altar and he laid them on the altar. Now when the priest would bring the bullock or the lamb to the altar, then they would place their hands on that bullock and on that lamb. And the picture was that the sins of the people now were being transferred to that lamb, to that bullock. And then that animal would be burned up as a picture of the sins of God's people being destroyed, cast off. Jesus took our sins... And he laid himself on the altar. He destroyed the power and the dominion of sin in his people in principle. So that sin has no power over us. We are separated from sin. And we're given the grace to do what's right and what's good. We still sin. We're still sinners. But that which rules us is no longer the power of sin and darkness. It's the power of righteousness. And that's the point here. Now we cringe over against suffering. Immediately we're inclined to think, I deserve better. I don't deserve this. Rather than pursuing and promoting your rights, look to Christ. If anyone deserved better, it was him. And what did he do? He laid himself on the altar for you and for me. Look to Christ. Repent. And know forgiveness through him. And so what does that mean? That means that the child of God now lives in a different way. The child of God now lives unto righteousness. That's our privilege. That's our obligation. Every man in the world either lives unto sin or lives unto righteousness. The child of God no longer lives unto sin. He lives unto righteousness by the grace of God in him. And to live unto righteousness means that he is committed now to pursuing the way that's right before God. That's the fruit, that's the wonder of the cross. And that's the power of the work of the Spirit within us. That will result in suffering. It will result in sacrifice. This keeps the child of God humble as he lives as a pilgrim and as a stranger. Reminded that his reward is not earthly, but heavenly. The child of God lives unto righteousness by submitting to his employer in the fear of God. Submitting to him for God's sake. 
In the face of impossible situations, the confidence of the child of God is found in Christ, who not only was faithful, but whose faithfulness provides his children the grace to live unto righteousness. Beloved, in that there is blessedness. Verse 25, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. By nature, we would go our own way. We would live unto sin. As foolish sheep, we would pursue our own lusts, our own desires, our own greed, our own covetousness. That's the way that leads to sorrow, to grief, to guilt, to shame, troubled consciences, and without repentance, to everlasting damnation. But Jesus Christ has rescued you. He's turned you. And that's the whole point that the apostle has been building on. Jesus Christ has taken hold of you. And he's transformed you and given you the victory. And think back to chapter 1. You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You are those who have been given an inheritance that's incorruptible, that undefiled and fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. You are being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. You are those who are holy, even as God is holy, and you're called to show that holiness. You are those who have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. You are those who have been born again. Born again, not of corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible by the word of God. You are those who are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, the apostle says. You have been given the victory. You have been transformed. Now be who you are. Live out of the glory that is yours in Jesus Christ. Also here, in this area of your life, your employment. And trust the shepherd, the bishop of your soul, to keep you. He's watching over you. He's caring for you. The shepherd and the chief bishop of the sheep is the one who protects. He leads. He feeds. He guides. And he rules over your body and over your soul. He's going to provide your needs. He will supply everything as your shepherd, as the chief bishop. There's going to be struggles. Your way is going to be difficult. You may have a froward employer and you may have very little opportunities to go somewhere else. But you go forward to this confidence. Christ is your keeper. He has given you the victory. And you walk in the way now of righteousness and life and you lean on Him. The Christian worker works with his mind. He works with his hands in order to have possessions for his family and also to give to the support of the causes of the kingdom of God and for the relief of the poor. He knows that he's a servant of God. He knows his possessions are, first of all, the Lord's. 
He belongs to the Lord and all that he has is. And so he gives liberally, he gives cheerfully, he gives generously as the Lord has prospered him. He knows I'm a stranger, I'm a pilgrim. I'm just passing through here. This isn't my lasting dwelling place. I'm looking forward to that building not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so he uses the means that God has given him to provide for the needs of God's kingdom, laboring in the fear of Jehovah and trusting that Jehovah God will provide his servants with all their needs. God promises that he will care for his children. We may need to look at our priorities sometimes. We may have to evaluate whether or not we're being good stewards of what we have. We may need help sometimes from family members or from the deacons to do that. There may be times when we make use of the mercies of Christ. And in that way, God provides us. God will grant His blessing. And the faithful servant will experience God's grace and God's contentment. He will know peace. He will know the blessedness of honoring God with His substance and trusting in Him to provide His need. And God will use you to adorn Himself. Verse 12 God at that, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. God will use diligent, faithful labors of his servants to glorify and to praise him. He will use it to bring a witness to unbelieving employers or employees so that they see the power of the gospel and the power of Christ within his children. He'll use it to give the unbelieving employers who are cruel no excuse for their wickedness. He'll use the godly example and the godly labor of his children to promote the good of his kingdom now as well as in heaven. Seeing our works, others may glorify our Father, which is in heaven. And God will use the struggles, the challenges that we endure in the workplace to shape and to fashion us for our service in heaven, knowing that all those works are His works before ordained that we might walk in them to His glory. History has repeatedly proven that though the world may bring all kinds of accusations against Christians... Those accusations fail. They don't stand. Christians remain the most diligent and faithful laborers. The godly men of old lived and worked in heathen courts for wicked masters, Daniel, Nehemiah, Joseph. They were a great testimony through their diligent and faithful labors as servants. And God will continue to make use of the labors of his servants to glorify his name. So that Christian workers must be the best workers there are. Protestant Reformed people and young people, the best men and women to hire and to work for. God using this reputation to adorn the doctrine that we confess. That others might see that we are Christ's and that we live unto Him. Many are the dangers, the struggles of our pilgrim sojourn. But in the sheepfold of our shepherd and under his loving care, we are safe. 
We don't seek vengeance. We leave that to the Lord. He's the shepherd. He's the bishop of our souls. And having earned our salvation, he is the one who does all things in our lives to bring that salvation to its fruition. And we remember, servants are no less important than masters. Our Lord is no respecter of persons. God does not regard the great, the glorious, the wealthy, the mighty, higher than the lowly, the struggling, the impoverished. Whether servants or masters, we must give an account before our Lord in heaven. And the godly servant confesses his weakness, looks to God for strength, and seeks to live as that pilgrim and stranger called to show forth the praise of his Lord who is in heaven. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen us in the calling to which thou hast called us. In the midst of the struggles and suffering and challenges, grant us wisdom. And above all, Lord, forgive us. And grant unto us the grace by which we might know that our sins are forgiven through the blood of our Savior. And may we go forward in his strength, believing that he is the one who has called us to labor with fear and trembling, doing that which is good, that we might give all glory and honor unto thee, the God of our salvation. Strengthen us for the labor to which thou hast called us, we pray. And grant that we might labor in earnest expectation of the glory of that heavenly reward, a reward of grace. Amen. We turn to Psalter number 98, the rewards of the righteous. Righteous. 